This is a project of the Mashup Americans. Welcome to Grief Collected, where we explore how grief moves through our bodies, our families, and our communities, and why we need to feel it all in order to transform our future. Today, we are talking to Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg about some of the roots of our grief culture here in America, and with that knowledge, what collective grief and healing can look like in our communities. Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. Rebecca? Life has intervened in our grief show, uh, or maybe better to say, um, I don't know, somehow evidence that grief is a part of life because we are now, today, grieving a new loss in our lives. Yes. So as we prepared for this conversation today, we had already interviewed Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, and we were preparing to do this introduction. And my grandmother died, as we were meant to record. Um, so that happened yesterday. And my grandmother, Omi, that's what we called her, died yesterday, a week shy of 103. Amazing. Amazing. And I think... Um, it's been incredible already to see how much of everything we're talking about is playing out in my family right now. I had the privilege of meeting Omi a couple of times, mm -hmm. and even my kids got to meet her, which is incredible. And I think yes. her kind of life and the way that her family adores her is just truly a testament to her life. And I think something that that you had said to me yesterday, which was so striking, especially, you know, we've been kind of thinking about the conversation we had with Linda Tai constantly, kind of since we had it, is that all of her children were delighted in. Yeah, she delighted. She and my grandfather delighted in their children. And so my dad and his siblings, you know, that is who they are. And while they carry the grief of the stories of their parents' resilience and loss and, you know, immigration and um, persecution, they also are people who were loved and delighted in. It's pretty incredible. You know, I look a lot like her, so I'm very lucky to carry her DNA. And, uh, and I was also very lucky um, after she died to be able to go visit her body in her home she'd lived in for 74 years um, and and to be with her body um, mm -hmm. and to touch her skin while it still had warmth. I think it felt very beautiful. And I think being in grief, being in grieving reminds me that there is structure, that mm -hmm. I have a structure, that I have Shiva, as we'll talk about a little bit today, which is the first, in the beginning, the seven days that you pray with the grieving parties. You know, we have rituals for burial and the ways that we want to do this and know to do it. We have a rabbi who my family, my dad and his siblings love and trust with guiding them through a service um, that would be meaningful, that my grandmother, someone my grandmother knew very, very well and loved. And, and that is something that she created intentionally in family, sharing those values, um, but also comes from, you know, time in memoriam in my heritage, in my family tradition, in Jewish tradition. 
Well, I think, you know, something that is also amazing to observe and that that is um, something that kind of like I, I wish that we all had is these, I was about to say Jewish containers. That doesn't sound right. But these <laughs> containers for for ancient technologies. Ancient technologies that there are rituals and structures mm, and mm. ways of being in this like pivotal life moment that was going to happen one way or another, right? It's the one thing that we know will happen that kind of were able to like, it it surged up in you and in your family mm. as like an incredibly natural expression of who you are, mm. you know, and it's, it's like deeply part of your Jewishness. These are Jewish traditions and Jewish rituals, but mm. it, there was no question about what was going to happen. Obviously, there's questions. When does Shiva start? How many people are going to be at the funeral? There's you know, so family many logistics. questions. Oh, uh, with COVID, Life are questions. we masked? Are we wearing masks inside the chapel? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's a whole situation. But that there aren't questions about how you knew that you were going to be together. Correct. And I think that there's, there's that's um that's amazing i just think you know and like not not everybody has uh not everybody has a culture like that yeah i think that is a lot of what we have been exploring like what does it mean to be out of context yeah i would not describe myself as religious. I did not grow up in a religious tradition. And I think um, probably the most annoying aspect of me is that I would genuinely describe myself as a spiritual person or like a, a somebody who is seeking. Why is that annoying? <laughs> I don't know. It's something about, to me, it's always just very eat, pray, love, that word. Uh, you know what? The internet ruins everything. First the of internet all, does ruin it. Free Love is a great book and a great movie featuring the inimitable Julia Roberts, first of all. Second of all, I do think it becomes like a nothing burger. And that's what your my guess is reacting to. But actually being spiritual, that's so beautiful. Like it's just acknowledging maybe there's something more then you can totally understand, right? Right. Something right. like that. And that I do have faith in that. Yes. And so I think that's what like the seeking is. And when I think about it, like in relationship to grief, as I have tried to like wrap my head around it, as we've been in this work for the past couple of years, is just like the seeking probably also has a lot to do with seeking a ritual that makes sense for like me and for my family. Like I believe very much in like a connectedness and to a spirit world. I have done Buddhist pilgrimages. Like I've Mm. lit incense for people I'm grieving at Buddhist temples. I do believe that, and in some way, like this is very related to us, our kind of understanding of grief as a part of life, like life is suffering, which is Mm. like a core Buddhist principle. And I I don't actually mean that to mean like we're all suffering all the time, but that it's just, these are facts, right? That these Mm. are parts of life that we can't ignore. And I think that grief is actually a core component of all of that. Mm. But like, if I think about rituals there, it's like a hodgepodge. It's just mm. a mashup, which is like very much me and my family that we've kind of either taken on or done reinventions of things that make sense to us. Like going to temple, like we make our ofrenda every year for Dia de los Muertos, like mm. going to 
my grandmother's grave in Korea and drinking whiskey and making a picnic. Like mm-hmm. these are all things that we do. Yeah. Whiskey. Got to get that good duty free stuff. Oh. <laughs> Johnny Walker at the duty free. Mm, that huge bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so I think, you know, taking that, like our kind of the rootedness in tradition, which has always been part of being a mashup and also just how we blend that with what is American culture and then how we reshape American culture is a lot about what this conversation with Rabbi Danya is today. Just like, how do we grieve collectively and what what currently makes up our communal grief culture and how we might uh, evolve that because mm. that is helpful. So like there are things that make up American culture that therefore shape our grief culture, which is... Um, Corey Hemplow, individualism. Oh, wow. Just like... We love an extreme individualism here, don't we? We really do. And like (laughs) the whole kind of like lone cowboy, I don't even know, bootstraps, everything, all of the mythology about like being an American is very much about being an individual. So there's also religious influences and not, I mean as we've just discussed our own religious makeup. But, you know, we swim in American Protestantism, right? And there's a sort of generalized Protestantism that infuses American culture. And over the course of a couple centuries has led to an emphasis, for example, on forgiveness, which is related to grief here in this idea of kind of moving forward by forgiving. Mm -hmm. And that leads to glossing over harm rather than confronting something hard and focusing on some kind of accountability. And especially when we think about how grief is experienced on a community level and like harm and grief that whole communities suffer due to say racism or police violence or homophobia that like how if if we have this culture of forgiveness but like without accountability how do those grieving communities ever heal like how do we actually grapple with the grief that is at hand on like a societal level we're starting to understand better like how grief plays out in our families Mm -hmm. and how grief plays out in ourselves like in our bodies as individuals and i think now thinking about what grief looks like on a communal level and then also what healing looks like on a communal level is really important and it's what we're going to try and like muddle through today and muddle through all of our Americanness with Rabbi Danya. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg is an award-winning feminist author and writer. Her newest book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, provides a crucial new lens on repentance, atonement, forgiveness, and repair from harm. It helps us envision a new way forward for healing communal traumas and grief. You sort of found a new path to your religious self, to religion, to Judaism, when your mom died and in that grieving. Mm -hmm. And I would love to know more about what it was about the grieving rituals or grieving tradition itself that you felt... uh, you connected so deeply to or how it supported you? So I think there were a few things happening on a few different levels. I was a religion major who 
got to study religion because I was interested in philosophy, and religion was kind of that, but as an atheist. And then my mother got sick. She had cancer, and then she died. And we did the funeral Jewishly because we were Jews, and that's how we did that. And then we sat shiva. We stayed home, and people came to be with us because we're Jews, and that's what we do, except it was helpful when I was in shock and everything had just changed utterly to have people come. When a parent dies, you go to say the mourner's Kaddish, the mourner's prayer for them for 11 months. And though I was not a religious person, I needed something to do. So every Friday night, I went to do this. And I would stand up to say the Kaddish, so everybody in the synagogue could see that I was mourning. I was forced to say words of praise at a time when I felt darkest. I was brought back to this place again and again and again, so I had something anchoring me, even when I felt, you know, at my most rootless. And I was in a community that was there and that was supporting me. And it wasn't a community I wanted to be in necessarily, Mm. but I was there and week after week after week, these people were there and they held me. And week after week, I began to see that there was more to this prayer service than I had even thought. And once I began to attain what they call ritual mastery, like it didn't feel so hard once I get to know it a little bit. And at the same time in grief, you know, I was blown wide open, like my defenses were pulled completely apart. You know, it's a famous story that in grief, people become open to religious or spiritual practice in a new way. And I think that's why, because the ritual can hold you and at this moment of liminality and emotional break, uh, you're open to experiencing it in a new way. I have a question about some of the ritual. This is very resonant for me on every layer. One of the questions I have, what did you say that was mastery of the ritual? Ritual mastery. Yeah, that's a, that's a phrase from Catherine Bell, who's a, a religion scholar. Well, it's like. so beautiful and that's so helpful. And I think one of the things we're saying, we're our hypothesis is that there's very little ritual mastery in so much of, at least in the communities we observe of, as um, as Americans, they're not often not knowing what to do in situations or what to lean on. Right. And just to step back a little in Jewish tradition, somebody told me something that I've never done after like the seven day shiva that there's some piece where you are meant to take the mourners, mm-hmm. the, the community takes the mourner and takes them into the world in a mm-hmm. different way. Yep. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think one of the things we're we're wrapping our head about is what is community yeah. in this and what is the collective experience of this? Right. So after the burial, the mourner then spends seven days generally at home, Shiva means seven, and there's a variation on the word seven. And um, so people come to them and take care of them and bring them food for seven days. And they're in this 
enclosed space. It's like a womb-like space for them to grieve and be cared for and be kind of loved on. But at a certain point, you have to go back, right? You cannot stay in that deep grief enclosure for forever, uh, even though grief is going to be ongoing. And for most relatives, there's a sort of 30-day marker for the end of the formal uh, mourning period, which isn't to say the grief won't continue. And for parents, it's 11 months. But at the end of this intense seven-day period, your people will come and walk you around the block at the end of the Shiva period. And that's to symbolize, it's a way of ritualizing and symbolizing your return to the world and reintegration with who you have been in this grief space and the ways you've been transformed in this loss with who you are going to be now moving forward as you come back into the world. And your people are there and they're with you and they have your back as you're doing this walk. So you're not alone. And as you move back into the world, you're still not alone. Oops, I already I, cried. Just, oh, you know, already, you got to well, start this here we go. off. Here How we many go. minutes in <laughs> can we you start like, to cry? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> tear count. Boop, boop. I love that you um, make that metaphor of a womb because I think, you know, there's so much about this and, and we can see it in like all different levels and in all different ways, like similar to how there's no government-sanctioned bereavement policy, there's no parental leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something about tying those two monumental things together that our society is so bad at doing. And it just, it makes me think, like, in Korean culture, tradition is that for 40 days after you give birth, you're at home. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I remember giving birth nine-some years ago and being like, that's fucking crazy and why women don't have to stay home and like actually I really could have used 40 days where I like just perceived what new life was and then 40 days later somebody took me out and my baby into the world and introduced it but that aside I think there's something so beautiful about that idea of the collective coming together to mourn a loss together and so for me and for us like we think that's so beautiful right that connection to our community but in a place like America, how do we take that need for connection and expand it out and across rather than what seems to happen, which is like when there is some sort of collective loss or collective grief, people are like, it's less that they're connecting and more that they're like retreating back into their corners. Right. Right. A, people retreat back into their corners and B, in this highly, highly individualistic culture with very, very low levels of empathy. I mean, you know, people study, like, you know, ranking countries with levels of empathy in the United States always comes out very low on the list. Oh, it's real sad. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. You know, countries with right. higher higher levels of collective sensibility rate higher on levels of empathy because there's that sense of us. And the U.S. is so individualistic that when there's – any kind of rupture of, of care or loss, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to take care of each other. And so often what comes up is so insufficient 
and so late and and so doesn't do the job and is so missing, you know, things. You know, COVID is this, still is this profound, profound, unbelievable mass tragedy that we haven't figured out how to name or put mm. our hands around. And, you know, there was like a televised thing for 10 minutes at some point, you know, early in the Biden administration. But like, like, what is that? Yeah, we don't know. We just haven't developed the, the collective language as Americans to find each other. And I don't know necessarily what that language is um, or what it has to be, but it can look a lot like inviting each other into each other's spaces, right? Like the most beautiful moments happen when someone says, we're doing this thing here, come with me, right? Join me. We are here. Come be with us in solidarity. I think we're, we're starting to edge toward this, but I wonder from, you know, from your point of view as an expert in repair, as a rabbi, you know, all of us here in this conversation, like as mashups, we come from communities where there has been so much shared loss and yet we move forward together, right? And so I think we can like see the value of that. But can we define what is collective grief? And then, you know, from there, start to look at then what collective healing and collective repair can look like. I think when we talk about collective grief, we need to remember that they're not all the same, right? That people having kind of parasocial relationships with monarchs or rock stars, right? Like I was one of many, many people who had a feeling when Prince and Lou Reed died, right? Um, I did. Like, it's not the same as the collective grief of Mike Brown or George Floyd, who were human beings who needed to be mourned in their own right and who also were related to much, much larger spaces of significant systemic oppression. And that that collective grief is different from the collective grief of COVID, which Mm -hmm. feels very different when you think about the ways in which COVID impacted black and brown communities versus other communities and, and, you know, what messaging got put out when and by who and the whole complexities of vaccines and all of that is mushed in with the very, very, very real fact that people that were loved are not here anymore. And, you know, however many, like millions of people created in what I would say the image of God, whatever that means, are not here anymore, right? And are missed. And there's a hole in the universe as a result. Like, you know, I don't think there is a single definition of collective grief is kind of where I'm going. I think one of the things you do so beautifully in your work, I'm not the only one to think this, this is how most people would describe your work. (laughs) But one of the things you do most so beautifully is take specifically Jewish wisdom, understanding, learning, traditions, and help 
apply it culturally because mm-hmm. there's so much to learn from and grow with. And as we talked about Shiva and then walking into the world, one of the things it feels like we're doing here is often we're not taking that period we're often just keep walking. We've not taken the shiva where we cover the mirrors and we sit right. in it. Right. And I think in some ways, maybe maybe the protests of, of May and June in 2020 had some feeling of that, like the really wrestling with the darkness of it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what can come from that? But it feels like we like you were saying about COVID. You're like, okay, we acknowledged it for f- five minutes we but didn't what is that if, if it's millions of people and each one of those millions of people deserves seven days of that what does that mean for all of our psyches and our souls how, mm-hmm. how could we maybe do it differently right especially because it's ongoing mm-hmm. yes there's a million people and at the end of today there will be another 500 right in america right right and and how do we wrap our heads around that? And then what would we do about that are two very significant questions. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you know, we've got capitalism, which says, <laughs> move forward, productivity. What are you doing? Come on. Like that pause, that stop and feel your feelings for a moment be in this enclosed space and rage and cry and be held thing, which, you know, I agree that the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer of 2020 kind of were that, right? That was that space to rage and cry and scream collectively. And, you know, with COVID, we never... We never got that. We were, we had this sort of lockdown of fear, but it was a, you know, almost as soon as we stopped, we were told that we needed to start again and be productive members of society. And the go, go, go aspect is just so deeply ingrained in our society that you only have value if you are making and doing and producing. You know, what is a life worth? Our society doesn't pause to make space for the dead because they are not producing. And the Mm. mourners do not get that space because they could be producing. And it's the same reason we don't have maternity leave, right, or parental leave, Mm. right? Because you need to be producing. And that sense that you get to be a three-dimensional human being who has feelings and emotional needs and that you are part of a collective and that we all have care and needs and we, we need to take care of each other is just, it's absent from the playbook mm. because capitalism and individualism are what's driving the train. Mm. Well, on that note. <laughs> we want to talk about your chapter. No, on national yes. repentance. No, <laughs> So I think, you know, Rebecca and I are like very not silver lining people, which is funny or ironic because we're like also like deeply optimistic, hopeful people. Mm -hmm. But we're not into being like, well, the upside of COVID is that maybe we'll do. There's no upside. There's no fucking upside. Right. But so I think there's something that really struck us about this idea that collective grief can be, it's defined by some grief researchers as as regenerative. Mm -hmm. And there's this quote 
from the grief researcher Mary Frances O'Connor, who says the act of resistance and thriving in the face of grief is functional and has both individual and community level assets, which to me is her saying repentance and repair. And I, I wonder, can you define repentance and repair and also draw the line there, like the link between that grief and then the repair work? Okay. So the word that gets translated as repentance in English, because I don't know, it's close enough, in Hebrew is tshuva, which really means return. Like it's an answer to a question. It's a return mm. ticket to your bus. It's coming back to where you were supposed to be before you did harm. It's returning to your integrity. It's returning to your intuition, to your best self, to your connection to the divine, if that's how you see the world, right? It's about coming back to where you were supposed to be. Um, but there's an assumption that there's been harm. And there are steps to doing this repentance work. There's naming and owning and speaking the truth of the harm that you caused. There's beginning to do the work of change, right? That you can't stay the same person as a harmdoer. So is it therapy? Is it rehab? Is it anti-racism or learning about transliberation? How are you going to change? Then amends, reparations, right? Repairations, right? Then something to not undo what was done, because you can't do that, but to sew up that hole in the universe you know, some way to care for the person that was harmed. Apology, right, which is a, an acknowledgement of the pain that the harmed person experienced and, and a, sort of an open heart that gets that the person really, really deserved so much better than what they got. And then when the opportunity arises to make different choices, different choices get made. And so when we think about collective harm, you know, we can think about the collective opportunity to name that harm. And mm. so uh, often our c collective grieving is a space to name that harm and it is an opportunity mm. to move forward into a new future, right? Mm. And the murder of George Floyd, for example, right? That's a space that is a crying out that is saying this is, this is we need to, to hold each other. We are caring for each other. We are reaching out for each other. And we are crying and saying that this is not okay, right? We are calling the ones who caused harm to own what they have done. This is an invitation to the work of repair and change. And in an ideal world, this is then the, the time when owning that harm caused and beginning that process can begin. Um, and unfortunately, that work has not yet begun vis-a-vis -vis white supremacy in the United States. We repeat the same harms again and again and again. Um, and we see what's possible, right? Collective grieving can open us up into new spaces. I think about the work of the land back movement, for mm -hmm. example, as indigenous peoples 
have done so much work naming and articulating and and claiming the harms that were done to them and pushing certain parts of those with power to see and name and own and take responsibility for what has been done. And some of those who have been in power have gone through processes of really, really getting it. I do love that the people who are harmed are the ones that can name the harm and the grief and that can start the process. Right. So when we talk about collective grief, like that can be a space for those who have been harmed to look at those in power and say, ouch. And sometimes there can be a Mm. a process wherein those who have caused harm begin to get it little by little and are able to see the grief that has been in process all along. Mm. And we can't necessarily do the work of power for it. But collective grief, if we're talking about that, can be a powerful, A, insistence on the truth, right? It's a, it's a, a it's a way of, of us holding each other during the hard part. B, it's a way of us speaking the truth unblinkingly. And see, it's a way of looking at at power and saying, this is what is. And this is the opening and this is the open door. Hmm. And that doesn't sort of automagically fix structural injustice, but it can be a necessary first step. And, you know... Sometimes it's the linear process and often it's not. Mm. But that doesn't mean there isn't process. It sure feels messy to live in it. My mm-hmm. God. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> is uh is the challenge and the struggle of naming that tear and stepping into the opportunity that unfolds from it to do that repair work, is is this like a uniquely American situation where we're so bad at it? <laughs> I mean, I think we're bad at it for really specific reasons. And I feel clear on sort of... Capitalism and individuality? Yeah, capitalism, individualism, white supremacy. You know, I think it's not an accident that white Northerners started preaching forgiveness as a really, really key tenant of Christianity right as the Civil War ended. And they said, "Okay, great. Party's over. War's over. Let's forgive our southern buddies. And now we're all friends again because Jesus said forgive. And guess who got screwed out of that process? White northerners and white southerners had a big hug and newly emancipated and already freed black Americans got completely shafted in terms of developing rights um, and safety and everything. You know, you have Frederick Douglass being like, I will not, like, if Southerners want to repent, I will talk to them. But that you have enslavers who are not repenting and that are now supposed to be just forgiven, like, what is that? Right? This is white supremacy is sort of at the root of this forgiveness doctrine. 
I think you called it watered down Protestantism was something I saw beautifully in your... Yeah, like Martin Luther, who is not my best friend. He's not a huge fan of the Jews. <laughs> um, but he was very clear that repentance was a big part of the deal. And the Gospels, that whole like forgive 70 times 7, Jesus actually has like a community accountability process right there in that story. There's not something innate to Christianity that says no repentance. America decided that th this was a thing. Had America make such some bad decisions? <laughs> yes, we do. Um, I classic. Yeah, classic. Classic. I think this this is a problem anywhere there's power, really, because doing repentance work is always going to be threatening to those with power. Because if you say, I caused harm, I need to change, things are going to be different, then there may be significant implications for those with power. But I do think, even though I just sank into a moment of darkness for a minute, is that what I do love about this conversation that we're having is that the opening, what did they say? The opening, it lets the light in. You know, like there is opportunity to step forward and to mm -hmm. do work that like makes us healthier and more truthful and happier. That grief actually does. It's the first step to allowing that process to begin. Yeah. It's when we're broken open. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little more? I mean, you talk about this in your chapter on national repentance a little bit. And I'm wondering if you could give a sort of your ideas around what national repentance has looked like and what you think it could be as we're starting to visualize the the hopeful, f what we want from it. In the book, I looked at Canada, at South Africa, at Germany, and then I did a, a close look at the work of Land Back in Minnesota in particular. And I keep coming back to the fact that the beginning of national repentance work has to start with truth-telling, right? The, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, was messy and complicated and fraught in terms of the decisions that were made about who and how uh, the truth got told about what crimes against humanity were committed under apartheid and who testified and, you know, that people who testified got amnesty and which victims testified and how all that worked. And uh, it was complicated. And stories got told. And as Archbishop Desmond Tutu said then, he's like, you know, nobody now can claim that they didn't know. Hmm. Now they know. Because they were televised yeah. and everybody in the country was watching. And it's like nobody can pretend that they didn't know what was happening. Everybody in the country now understands what apartheid was about. And what he had really hoped would happen would be that sort of everybody who benefited from apartheid, which is basically everybody who's white, would undergo this deep national repentance process and that there would be structural reforms and sort of a one-off tax on corporations that benefited from apartheid and all of these things and some systemic things that would be implemented. And for various reasons, the government basically didn't implement any of the follow-through or many of the follow-through recommendations of 
the TRC. Like there was the truth telling aspect. And then there's a whole other committee working on developing recommendations for now what? And, you know, instead of ongoing payments to victims, it was a one time payment and it wasn't for everybody who was harmed systemically and and so on and Mm. so forth. And the tax wasn't for just the white people. It was the systems didn't change. And as a result, we basically got the truth without all of the other really necessary pieces of the process. And so the significant change that we needed in South Africa didn't happen. It was a little change, but not, not as much as could be. Right? We need the truth-telling, but truth-telling alone isn't enough. Hmm. And in Germany, I saw a lot of the steps of repentance, but they were, like, way out of order. <laughs> and there's, like, this whole <laughs> whole dance of, like, avoidance and, like, engagement. And then, hmm. you know, kind of facing the Holocaust and then ignoring the Holocaust and then denial mm-hmm. and then dealing. And, you know, they were, like, paid a bunch of money, billions of dollars in reparations, except the new... West German government right after World War II that paid all of this money had like a bunch of high ranking Nazis high Mm. up in the government. Like and they were like, you know, trying to stop Eichmann from getting captured. It's like, okay, guys, you're not really serious about this, are you? Yeah, you know, and then like a generation later, there are student riots and the students are really mad because there are a lot of Nazis in the university, but the students are not going home and asking like grandpa why grandpa was a Nazi, right? Like it's about them, not us. And, you know, and it's like back and forth. And then in the 80s, this happened and blah, 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 blah. And like little by little, they got to a much better place in Germany often gets cited as like the country that did all of the work. And it's like they did a bunch of the work. But I think that they did it not in order and that they did it in such a scrambled way, I think, is part of the problem. Also, it's like really convenient for Germany that the people that they were making amends to were either dead or not in their country. So they didn't have to Mm. deal with the systemic implications. Right. Whereas like South Africa or you think about the United States, the questions about who holds power today now are real. So the questions about what needs to happen are different. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, never thought. I will. Well, I, Rebecca's going to fix all that when she reclaims Well, I just German learned citizen. I should maybe get German citizenship. And But the funny part is the reason we couldn't before is they told my uncle, who did get it, but he had to prove he spoke German and all these other like hoops and whatever. They were like, because uh, my grandparents on that side were there and then left to Latin America. And they were like, you guys, they left too early. And we were joking. Is it really? Is it? Is it? Can it really be too early? From can, we're alive. Yeah, isn't, isn't, motherfuckers. It just, isn't it just on time or too late to leave I'm, Nazi Germany? I'm sorry, Germany? we didn't get put on one of the trains. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, ooh, we couldn't. Oh, okay. Uh, we but luckily, enough their connection to to numbers is helpful. They're like, this is your great grandfather's code, and you're like, okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, well, with that, <laughs> just some Nazi humor. Um, we're going to... Do you just like Holocaust humor? We do. We do. It's the only way. <laughs> um, we're going to wrap this beautiful conversation, although I could sit all day because all I really want to talk about is the world through this lens. Thank you so much for today. This has been so moving and enlightening and challenging and just... 
We've learned a lot. And and you're bringing out my greatest academic self from schooling. I have I have written in every page <laughs> on the sides. Um, oh, this one, American Exianity. You know, I just shortened it. Intent over impact. There's just like, who is our we? This felt like America first. There's just so I could. I mean, it's joyous and beautiful. And congratulations on birthing this of your many books and many children into the world. Oh, my God. My notes are like Protestant ministers lead to blanket forgiveness bad. Is, that's what I've got me here. With that, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yay! Bye. Oh, wow. Wow. I really do think that our truest selves are probably in the scribbled margin notes in the margins of all of our books. First of all, we've always said we were, <laughs> we were good students. Okay. <laughs> Nobody was ever fighting that. Second of all, this is the Kindle downfall. Because I like to uh, highlight things in a Kindle, but I can't write on them. Mm-hmm. Third of all, this is why I never give away books. And I'm sorry to this world, but I'm going to keep them in my house because I like to write in them. Uh, I know. And I like to review the notes. And also it's like kind of ghost from Christmas's past. Oh, You're 100%. like, wow, that was the margin note that I wrote in 2014. Or 2002, Virginia Woolf's The Waves. Do you know how many Ooh, stickers I have in that? I still don't know what happened. Wow. The amount of times that I tell my children that mommy needs a room of her own and they don't understand. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> well, you know what? Understand. I don't want them to ever understand. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and we did learn in study hall, study skills, that you do. it does help you remember when you write things down. Um, it's but I, true. I do think that there there was so much here, so much richness, and and that we still want to be able to metabolize further so that we can understand it for ourselves truly in our bones um Mm -hmm. this ideas of what does it mean to do the work even if it's for a future that you won't be in Mm. um so we're repairing we're repairing the tear yeah we we are repairing the tear doing some repenting too Mm. That too. Well, if you want to take notes in your own books, we are going to have a bookshelf of all of these amazing authors and resources that we have been citing in the pod on the website, griefcollected.com. So definitely go check that out. There will be more from Danya on there as well. And in a few days, come back to the pod for a special reading on grief from one of our favorite writers. Just it will sweep you away. And next week, we have our final episode in our grief series with Adrienne Marie Brown, the thinker, organizer, author, and visionary of our future. In my dream, dream world, it's like every year we would sit down and be like, what have we learned from our dead and our dying this year? What are we learning about the patterns of health and community and safety and um, distribution of, of material goods? What are we learning about ourselves from who's dying? Rebecca is fangirling through the whole episode. You yeah, look, I think I was pretty calm <laughs> in reaction to her, but in my soul, I levitated. Mm-hmm. We can't wait. See you soon. Ciao. 
Grief Collected is a production of the Mashup Americans, executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Senior editor and producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Development producer is Dupe Oyabolu. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Original music composed by the Brothers Tang. Sound design support by Pedro Rafael Rosado. Website design by Voxy. Grief Collected is supported in part by a grant from the Pop Culture Collaborative. Please make sure to follow and share this show with all of your friends. Ciao!